This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another wonderful interview this week. Very excited to bring you a conversation with Mo Mernick. Mo Mernick is someone I have been pursuing for quite some time to connect with. I've gotten to know him through columns that he's written for Mishpacha magazine where he interviews top executives and entrepreneurs and successful personalities from all across the Jewish world, very much in the vein of this podcast. And he asks them questions in written form and gets some really fabulous answers. Mo is also the author of a book called The Gift of Stuttering, which chronicles his lifelong battle with a severe stutter which he has really conquered incredibly, and you'll hear him describe how he still does, in fact, have to struggle with it, but how he has really embraced it and found incredible success in so many arenas of life, not only despite it, but, in fact, because of it. In that respect, I think it's rather appropriate that we are releasing this interview, which took place a couple of weeks ago, right after the conclusion of Pesach, the Passover holiday, when of course the leader of the Jewish people, Moses Moshe Rabbeinu, was a tremendous emissary in spearheading the Exodus under God's command. But of course, we also know that famously he was a stutterer. And just like this biblical antecedent, the modern day Moshe, Mo Mernick, also with a stutter, has done amazing, amazing things in his own life and to inspire and uplift so many others through his public speaking, his writing, his entrepreneurship, his Torah teaching, and much more. And so with that, we turn our attention to our conversation with Mo Mernick. We are here with Mo Mernick. Mo is coming to us from Israel, although we are not live, unfortunately for me, uh, doing this over Zoom technology. Mo is the founder and CEO of Winfluencers, which we'll learn about, as well as the author of a book called The Gift of Stuttering, which we'll also learn about, among many other fascinating biographical details. And uh, we'll get to all of that in a minute. But first of all, how are you, Mo? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Really excited about it. Uh, I've read about you quite a bit in various publications over the last couple of years and I read your uh, your business life column uh, in Mishpacha magazine and uh, been trying to arrange it for a while but you are a busy man which is which is awesome doing a lot of amazing things so I'm glad we finally are able to connect. Um, Mo let's take it back to the beginning and uh, tell us where you're from and a little bit about your early upbringing. Sure I'd be happy to do so. Uh, Thanks, by the way, for the very warm introduction there. I appreciate that. And it's so nice to be on the show. I love what you're doing. I love what you're accomplishing. And it's amazing that you have followers out there that are listening to all kinds of fascinating people that you're interviewing themselves. So it's a privilege to be on the show. And I appreciate that. I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. You can actually notice that I'm from Toronto because I don't pronounce the second T. So it's (laughs) Toronto. Those that are from Toronto say Toronto. And of course, all the regular Canadian stuff played a lot of ice hockey, uh, a lot of sports from Toronto. And that's where I'm from. Big Argonauts fan? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's an Argonauts fan. For those of you who don't know what the Argonauts are, you're not alone. We have what's called the CFL in Canada, unlike the NFL, which with its own set of rules and not many people I know actually follow the CFL. It's a wider field. Not much I know. But certainly followed a lot of baseball and basketball, ice hockey. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Played a lot of it and followed it, of course. Great. So early growing up, what was your, uh, you mainly involved in sports, other things? What, and what was kind of your, your Jewish upbringing as well in Toronto? Very good question. So early on, I played a lot of sports, loved roller coasters. The Toronto Amusement Park apparently is building the largest roller coaster in the world now. So that should get Toronto on the map for those of you who like roller coasters. But I'd say what I was really excited about as an early teen, uh, I always loved 
I'd say, I'd call it Hollywood, but more video, celebrities, movies. It always enthralled me. And I was brought up in a more observant home, an Orthodox home. And uh, I wasn't particularly too keen on that while I was growing up. And it was my dream to somehow be in television shows and movies. That was my dream, kind of going in a bar mitzvah, 13, 14, 15 years old. And I did. I got an agent at about 14 years old, and I began to be in movies for a couple of years. Wow. And that was certainly a very unique experience as a teenager. Now, in your ultimate ideal vision, was this something that would harmonize with your religious observance? Or was it really look, were you looking to, to escape from that? Very good question. It was definitely the latter. It was definitely an escape. I was uh, already through multiple Jewish high schools veering out of the Jewish school system. I remember being 14 years old and uh, I got my first call. The agent called me. I was going to play the part in a movie. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be in a movie. I was super excited. And on the way downtown, my mom asks me just one favor. She had to take me down. I was under 16 at the time. So she had to sign off and it was a whole thing. And she wasn't particularly excited that I was going to be in a movie or a few of them. And she had one favor for me. She said, Mo, I'm doing this for you. I know you want it, but can I please ask you one favor? Can you please try to leave the kippah on your head? And I was like, um, yeah, I'll see what I could do. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there I'm thinking like not a chance in the world, but the irony there, and I know that God was giving me this big wink from heaven. The irony there is when I show up on set that first day, the director is telling us all where to go. And he says to me that I'm going to play the role of a Hasidic Jew. No. <laughs> so just when I thought that I'm shifting out, not only God's, a kid, God's, like, <laughs> God's pushing me right back in even further to where I was. So white shirt, dark pants. And on the set, actually, the hair and makeup artist comes to me and says, excuse me, sir, but uh, the Jewish people, they wear their kippah like this. And she puts it in the back of my head, adds like six more clips. It was a very ironic experience. Uh, so where, where can we find this, uh, this clip? I mean, this is, we, this is breaking news out here. <laughs> so that was in a movie with Howie Mandel. That goes back. And then I was in a bunch of other movies that are more famous also, uh, alongside other more famous celebrities like Megan Fox and Lindsay Lohan, Russell Crowe, Renee Zellweger. The one that many people know now who wasn't very well known then was Drake. So before Drake was Drake, Drake was a nice Jewish kid from Toronto. I guess he still is a nice Jewish kid from Toronto. He just doesn't exactly come across that way right now. And he was all over a TV show called Degrassi High. Degrassi High was a nice Canadian TV show that was aired in Canada. And then it went really international. And then his career took off as well. So I was in that show many, 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 many times. It was kind of like the job that as an extra you never really want to get because it was just that Canadian television show. You always want to get on the, on the blockbuster Hollywood movies that are going to make it to theaters. And the irony now is that everybody's most intrigued by, oh my gosh, you met Drake, what was he like? So, <laughs> have, you, have you kept in touch with your, uh, your co-actor there? <laughs> I have not, I have not. But if you have reached on this podcast to reach him, so I hope he- All right, Shout I, out to Drake out there. <laughs> shout out to Drake, and I hope that he continues to use his talents or begins to use his talents for more very special things. And he's certainly yeah. very talented, and may he use it to inspire a lot of people for good, good way to Good way to put it. So now, I don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but you did publish a book in 2016, I believe, called The Gift of Stuttering. And again, we'll get to that later in your chronology, but that does imply that growing up, there may have been stuttering in your background. What can you tell us about that? And I'm particularly surprised to hear about your role as an, as an actor or an aspiring actor, given that reality. Very good question. On point. So while I was growing up, as I told you, with sports and amusement parks and wanting to be an actor, all kind of normal stuff. But what made me stand out a ton was the fact that I had a debilitating stutter. I really couldn't speak much. <laughs> Being in class, first grade, second grade, third grade and beyond, really not being able to get many words out of my mouth and being laughed at a ton throughout school. And I remember that vividly, what it was like, um, even just being able to answer the phone and not being able to say the word hello or being asked my name and not being able to respond because it just got stuck. So that was both humiliating, embarrassing, and extremely frustrating. Uh, I'm particularly, I think, outgoing. I like to talk. I like people. I like to spend time socially. And that was very inhibiting, uh, not allowing me to really be myself. I went to years and years of speech therapy. And speech therapy is bizarre for stuttering because with a stutter, it's not like other speech impediments, like a lisp 
where a person might not be able to say R or S, and every time they pronounce that letter, it's going to sound unique the way they say it. With a stutter, it's not that way. It's so in our minds. There is some sort of physical stuff there as well. I'm not going into the, the uh, academia and the research and what it's like, but those of us who stutter understand there are certain words we can say and certain words we cannot. The more often we have to say letters or words, the more often we'll probably stutter on them. For those who stutter, the most they'll ever stutter on a word is often their name because they have to say it the most. Because if I get asked my name and it's Mo and I, and I can't get that M out, so in my mind, I'm very anxious around saying my name because I know that if I stutter again, I'll probably get laughed at, in which case, the more and more that snowballs, the harder it is. It's a cycle, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah, so that was the experience as a kid. Um, and we'll get back to soon how I'm talking to the way I am now because I still do have a stutter. I'm just, it's kind of acting what I'm doing now, but I'll explain that soon. So that is, that was that. Uh, interestingly, kind of to, to tie these two stories together, the growing up and then the being an extra, and then uh, the stuttering is that I was raised in that type of observant home and really the stuttering made me call a lot of the Judaism that I've been taught into. You know what, I'll actually pause for one second <laughs> and I'll tell the audience, uh, I'll bring you guys into my mind. Um, what I'm doing now throughout <laughs> this talk is first of all, speaking extra dramatically and I don't stutter as much when I speak extra dramatically. So I'm using my hands and I move a lot and just the intonation. Um, those of us who stutter from Ed Sheeran to many others, uh, um, if we sing, we'll never stutter when we sing, never stutter when we whisper, never stutter when we talk to ourselves. Really? And often in comfortable situations, we won't stutter either. So if you can kind of put on certain theatrics, you'll diminish the volume of the stuttering. Now, that's always been known, and I've learned over, over the years how to do that more and more and more. One other thing that I do is that because I know what word I'm about to stutter on, I all the time, especially when I'm public speaking, I word switch all the time. So if I know, and I'm always scanning ahead throughout this talk, always I'm scanning ahead, what word am I going to say? And if I think I'm going to stutter it, I'll use a synonym. So if you tell me, how's the weather in Jerusalem? And I'm about to say it's pouring. I'm like, and I know I'm going to stutter on pouring. I'll say, ah, it's raining so much right now. And you'll have not a clue in the world. So what I was about to say before, and I'll tell you what I was just about to do, and you'll just be able to follow it. That pause that you heard before when I was saying uh, that the stuttering that I had was being called into, and I paused, I was trying to say the word question, there the quiza, just a hard consonant to come out, and I was pausing because I knew it wasn't gonna come out. I was trying to find a synonym, I was trying to go around, but instead of just rolling with it, I was gonna just bring you guys into- awesome. love the meta uh, insight, what, thank what you. What goes on behind, uh, the world behind the voice on a podcast. So that stuff, when I wasn't as smooth with my speech or fluent with my speech or certainly comfortable with my speech or with myself really on a deeper level, I was becoming very frustrated and then even more angry with this concept called God. Like, you know, we're taught God loves us and he takes care of us and everything is for the best, but none of this made any sense. What do you mean? What do you mean? Life stings. It's really hard. It's really hard. I'm miserable. I'm getting laughed at all the time. I can't talk. I can't, I'm a human, I can't talk, what's going on? And I was getting really upset by it. And I'm told throughout there's this thing called God and he loves me and God take this thing away and it wasn't going away. And I, I, there seemed to be just this disconnect between all this theory that I've been learning about and in practice, the way that my life seemed to be headed and I, the shift into wanting to be an extra and wanting to kind of shift out of Jewish day schools was all part of that same shift in me saying, this stuff is just not for me. I don't know if it's true or not. It doesn't seem to be to me, but at least for me, I'd like to explore other avenues in life. The actual acting part of it, I was certainly too freaked out to get any speaking roles to start. So that's why I started as a background extra. So I'd get paid to be on set, all kinds of roles from playing basketball to doing all kinds of stuff all over different movie sets but not actually speaking, uh, not actually speaking. Did you have a dream of being able to speak on the screen? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I had such mixed emotion because there is even times when the producer, the director on set, when they wanna fill a quick role because they, they would like to shift what the actual script says and have another role or two or some lines that are put in they'll just choose one of the extras to audition right then and there now that happens sometimes i remember when i used to come up and i used to be 
so incredibly excited and beyond freaked out that if they were to choose me, I just wouldn't even be able to get one sound out. And those were, uh, that was certainly a, certainly a struggle. And, and it's interesting because I look back actually now and I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to experience what it was like to be on set, to meet big celebrities and to understand that world from in front of the camera and behind the camera. And uh, I really think it gave me actually a, a lot of insight to this dream world that I had back then about what seemed to be so rosy, beautiful, and happy on the other side of the world and what it was really like from seeing and meeting people firsthand and recognizing that this might not make so much sense for me too. And the most successful image in the industry was just something that didn't really add up to me either. I'm not, I wasn't famous. I wasn't like a successful actor, but just seeing then and there where I was as a 15, 16 year old kid, what it was like to continue to venture down that path and meet people that are there, that are it, that are household names and understand that <laughs> uh, they're not in person, what they, what their lives seem to be. Uh, what what, what did you, see, you saw people who were not uh, paragons of moral virtue, perhaps. What, what did you see directly? Yes, uh, very good question. So um, another point, which is interesting, which I'll bring up now as well, is that I had this dream to build a beautiful and happy home one day. I come from a broken home, which was very challenging as well. And I had this dream to one day somehow be this great husband and father. And I know I was young and I certainly wasn't necessarily acting that way in everything that I did back then, which would bring me to where I am, but I knew that it was where I wanted to be somehow. And in watching what took place around me, literally, I don't want to go into detail on the, on the podcast, but I was just in various movies and television shows and um, with all kinds of ratings and, and seeing what takes place between men and women for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours a day uh, that are married or that are not married and how that takes shape and then understanding and reading about their lives and about multiple marriages and homes and kids and estranged families. It just seemed to paint this picture to me, which made sense seeing it firsthand that there's very, very little chance for me, should I succeed in this world, to build the kind of home that I would like. So that's even aside from Judaism, that was just a separate dream that I had. And that was one of the reflecting back that I had more speaking roles and been a better speaker at the age of 15. I might have pursued that even stronger. I'm glad that I did not but it's just interesting to reflect on that today. You talk about the gift of stuttering. Perhaps that was one of them. You know, what you would have thought counterintuitively that, that inhibiting of your advancement as an actor may actually have been a great gift in the long run. Certainly. And when you mention the word gift, it sounds like a paradox. That's why it is. And that's why I named the book after that. Because what was really transformational for me was those next few years between the ages of 15 and 18, Coming out to Israel and beginning to study, I was not having a successful high school career at all. I came here early on. I was going to go to public school. I came to Israel instead, and I stayed, and I began to study, and I began to really delve in deep. And without going into detail here, I really began to understand on a very deep philosophical level that life really is beautiful. God really is awesome, and he really does care about me. And somehow I was beginning to put together this beautiful tapestry of like my world and I have everything that I need to be all that I could be. And once I start to see that that made sense, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it was easy to have a stutter. It still wasn't. But I began to see how much I've grown from it. So to think about the stutter, I became a more sensitive person. I became more patient, more kind. I became more appreciative for other health in my life that I had that I wasn't ever thinking about. Like... For other listeners out there, like, have you ever woken up and thought to yourself, wow, <laughs> I could talk this morning without thinking ahead, scanning ahead every word that I'm about to say and thinking about whether or not I should shift it or be careful because that guy's going to laugh at me. You know, the amount that goes on in my mind every day is absolutely nuts and bizarre, but there's so many other areas that exist. So if I can stop focusing less on feeling pity for myself about the challenges that I have, but rather focus a little bit more on the areas in which I am blessed with other things that are... Um, more obviously 
gifts. So that was very helpful as well. But um, I began to really see, and again, just that those very challenges were not obstacles to becoming who I am today, but they were actually vehicles to help me arrive. How did you put together, you know, you said you were studying in Israel. What did you learn and then how did you come to see God, as you say, in this way that he's loving and, and so forth, although he'd given you these real this really profound challenge that, you know, is again, more than just like a practical inhibitor, but actually is a source of humiliation and ridicule. Very good question. I found myself at the age of, I was almost 16 at that time. I was here for a summer, a little bit beyond that. And, and I was going to go, I was going to potentially go back to Toronto for a public school. Um, and I was beginning after a little bit of time in Israel, I was inspired and I, I wanted to take that further. I just didn't know where or what or how to do that. So I found myself at the Western Wall, at the Kotel, at the Western Wall, and I, I tried this thing called prayer many times before, but I, I often didn't feel like I was connecting to anything or anyone. And uh, I vividly remember that experience just being breaking down and beginning to cry and just like talking in English, just like, God, you're there, I think, you know. <laughs> I, I, life's been pretty miserable, and I'm trying to find myself. And I, I just remember having this whole open not just monologue, but it almost seemed like a dialogue. Like I was just being very open and I just felt being listened to. It was a very powerful experience that I hope that everybody who's listening, everybody can actually have that experience. Uh, just being able to really, really connect, disconnect from technology, disconnect, and just allow ourselves to connect with ourselves and to connect with, it was just very, very powerful. And shortly thereafter, miraculously, I got introduced to a certain Jewish institution of higher learning and the whole story about how I got in was just a tremendous set of miraculous events. So I began to really study on a high level with students that were much older than me and more mature than me. And I was able to continue high school on my own on the side and continue with the SATs and do all that stuff. But um, to be able to really grow, it, it, was just, it was just deep. I mean, if you'd like, I'd be happy to share some of the messages that I gleaned from that time. But um, that was truly transformational. And perhaps the most interesting part about all that when it comes back to the stutter is that once I began to, I use these words, they sound cliche, but they're really deep. Once I began to like, like myself, once I began to be happier with myself, once I began to just be happier with life. So there was so much less anxiety and pressure around stuttering. It was just, it was just, all right, God's got this. <laughs> I didn't decide to have a stutter nor a broken home. God's given me seemingly what I need to be who I am. I'm not going to change those realities, but I'm going to be a player in the game and do the best that I could do to make the best of the reality that I have. Once that became my reality, there was this huge paradigm shift. It took place over a few years. That paradigm shift around not needing to like change, not needing to cure this incurable stutter, but just how do I rock life? All right. Life, life's ahead of me. There are other successful people who, have, who had a stutter, like Moses all the way down to, you know, the vice president, Joe Biden, the former vice president of the U.S., like Winston Churchill and Marilyn Monroe, and, I, and as I mentioned, Ed Sheeran, and many other very, very successful, famous business people and celebrities, all politicians. So either I'm going to, like, be down and out and ruin my life or make it happen. And I began to chose the latter about just, like, making it happen. And what was so interesting is that once I became more comfortable with myself being okay with the fact that I stutter, when I stuttered telling people, oh, that's my stutter, you know, just want to let you know, or <laughs> did you hear that? That was my stutter. Uh, yeah. Owning it. Once I began absolutely owning it, very interestingly, I began to stutter a little bit less. Right. Because there was less anxiety around, oh no, what is he or she going to think about me if I stutter? It's just who I am. It's just a part of me. And this is who I am. And I love who I am. So guess what? If you don't, have a nice day. This is me. And that was a very poignant uh, um, paradigm shift around the age of 17, 18, 19, kind of being able to shift into that through university and my first jobs and everything. It was, it was a very, very powerful time. Wow. Now, throughout all this time, did you stay in Israel long term? I know you were there then and you're there now. Have you stayed all the way through? Um, no, not to, no. not to date you, you, but you, you know, there's been a couple of years between 19 and, and now. Um, so what did you do from there? Um, and, you know, at some point you moved into business development and entrepreneurship and there's a whole other side to your, your life and your career. So where did you kind of go with all that? So I moved back to Canada and the U.S. I was going back and forth a little bit for, from the age of about 17. 
uh, back from Israel. I finished university at 19 in the US. I was in yeshiva for part of that time also. Uh, that was in New Jersey. I did an internship at a finance firm. It was a whole experience unto itself, how I got the job in the first place with my stutter. Having a stutter, that, that was very, very unique being in the professional world at UBS at a large bank with the stutter. The bank of stuttering, UBS. <laughs> very, very, very good. Once I finished that internship and shortly before I finished university, I was actually invited by an organization in Central Europe to come and help and to teach Judaism. Uh, so I went for seven weeks along with a number of other guys that I was friendly with. And we went throughout Germany, we went to Berlin, Hamburg, Leipzig, Munich, and, and we went to teach Jewish students about Judaism. Now that for me was very interesting for two reasons. Number one, I had a stutter and they were just throwing me on a, like the stage to give large presentations. I didn't even speak German. I couldn't really speak much at all. And it was so interesting because being in a whole new element, I actually started to speak and to love public speaking. It was such a pivotal time for my beginning to public speak and present. In addition to that, and perhaps deeper than that, is that I had had such challenges philosophically with Judaism and meaning and purpose and happiness that after having delved into it so much in Israel and back in the States, beginning to teach other students and seeing that almost everybody has these very same or similar questions, it was so empowering to know that the knowledge that I had gained over those few years was actually enabling me to teach and help others try to lead a more meaningful and happy life. So while I finished that seven-week volunteer stint, I was actually invited back to work full-time for the organization, living in Hamburg and running the center in northern Germany. I was like, what? I, don't, I, I, was, I, was, going, I was planning to go back to work in business, and, it was, it was, and I was 19, so I, I was still young. So I finished university young because I began young, and uh, I, I thought about it for a few weeks, and I got back then with a yes. I was like, you know what? <laughs> this is the greatest Euro trip. I'm, I'm going to pay a full-time salary, and I get to pay back my student loans, and at the same time, I get to teach and inspire students to lead a more meaningful life. It was phenomenal. And it was also nuts. Like, I didn't speak the language. I was alone in Hamburg. It was a very, very growth-filled year for me and hopefully for others too, which was wonderful. So that, that began a couple-year, I'd say, detour off the business track. I went back to the States and Canada, and I taught a lot. I went out to Sydney, Australia, where I helped for about seven weeks on a, on a leadership program for a large Jewish day school over there. Mariah? Uh, yes, the Mariah College in Sydney, Australia, on the CounterPoint program. And then um, in addition to that, after I got married, which we'll come back to the marriage story because that's awesome. Also, uh, after I got married, my wife and I spent a year, we lived in Vancouver, Canada, where we taught for a year. My wife and I both taught for a year in various settings. And then, then we went back to Toronto, we taught, and then we moved to Israel. So we bounced around a lot. We moved to Israel about six, seven years ago, and we actually lived in the Tel Aviv area where we continued to teach students who were wow. there, um, students there. So we lived there for about two years. Our kids began to get a little bit bigger, and then we moved out to Beit Shemesh, where the kids are in schools, we're in a community, we continue to teach in various settings now. But uh, that's kind of a little bit of the where we've been since then. So I'm back in Israel now, thank God. And just actually, so interesting, because this past Friday night, now that you ask, about five days ago, it's now Thursday, I actually, six days ago, I actually spoke for the first time to the Derech Yeshiva. That's where I went to Yeshiva Derech, which is yeah, sure. Where I studied. Rabbi Brickman. Yes, that's where I went at the age of 16. They, they, and I'm so appreciative of them because that really helped, helped me re, uh, just kind of reassess my future and the direction that I was on. And I spoke to their yeshiva this past Friday night, about 60 guys, and it was so fun to like reconnect. It was the first time I've spoken to them. I've spoken to other groups, the first time I spoke to them. Yeah. And, it, and it felt this like full circle being back there. So that was absolutely beautiful. So back in Israel now, hopefully doing a little bit better than I was then, but I know there's a lot more to go and a lot more to do, and I'm excited to try to do all that I can to make that happen. Just one of my, my favorite story about the, the rabbi of that yeshiva, right, Rabbi Brickman. Apparently, he used to have a kosher hot dog stand in New York called Nachi's Nick Nakim, and it would go like a portable, portable hot dog cart. Don't ask me why I know that or why I remember that, but I heard that about 20 years ago, and it kind of stuck with me. But anyway. He's great. He's great. <laughs> so... You alluded to a, a great story with marriage. I would be remiss if I didn't double down on that and try to get the full story. What was the, uh, the marriage story like? And was dating in general an anxiety-filled process? And where was your stutter throughout this whole thing? And when was it really starting to improve dramatically? 
I know it's a lot of questions. Sort of. Ragari, you're good. Love it. Love it. Love the questions. You are on point. You're listening. Perfect. Absolutely love it. The stutter was gradually improving. I'd say I was becoming a little bit more fluent, but I still had the stutter. I was becoming significantly more confident even with the stutter. Leading up to marriage, I know that many, many people who stutter, for those of you that are listening, feel free to ask those. You know that I have a stutter. Dating and marriage is absolutely horrifying because as comfortable as we could be with our stutter, having a significant other in our lives and potentially embarrassing them with our stutter is a whole new world. And uh, so I knew that for me, there probably would be a number of people that wouldn't want to go out with me or that wouldn't want to marry me or would just not be the right one based on what I had. But having a sense of faith that God did create me with this and he also created the world and he clearly has some sort of plan for me. So it, again, it gave me a little bit of reassurance and it gave me a sense of, I'd say serenity. Peace of life. All right, God's going to help me find the right one. If a girl says no to me because I have a stutter, then she's just not the right one. It was having that sense of faith is just so important and so in, in every area. But as I began to date, so a little bit of anxiety because there was this one girl that I was suggested to for years, years. <laughs> My sister was her counselor when she was in high school on a traveling camp across the US. Her principal was a close family friend of ours. And for years, she was a topic of conversation at my table for Shabbat because my family was so confident that Mo was going to marry Melanie. It was just a given that Mo was going to marry Melanie and it was just what the reality was going to be. So uh, she was traveling after high school. Also, she began to teach in Texas when she was in Israel after she taught post high school to do university and to teach there as well. So I traveled to Israel and we began to date. Now this dating was, was exciting and a little bit overwhelming because everybody thought we were going to get married and we wanted to meet each other first. <laughs> and uh, I, I just remember that second date, we were sitting at a cafe in Jerusalem and I was very open about the stutter. And I said, I just want to, you know, you hear the stutter, it's there. I stutter. I just want to let you know, like it's there and I'll probably be there forever and I'm okay with it, but it'll come up. It'll probably embarrass you. It's just the reality of what it is. And maybe, you know, you can imagine various scenarios that that will come out. I just want to be open with you. This is who I am, and it's a part of me. And her response totally floored me. Um, she, would, she told me that she was actually more attracted to me. She heard about it. She was more attracted to me because of my stutter. Not in a weird way, like, oh, Mo's got a stutter. It's so cute. <laughs> he can't say his own name. <laughs> but rather, it was she was inspired that somebody could take a challenge and find meaning and purpose to become happy with it, confident with it, recognize it's from God. And the way she explained it was that in life, she was looking to partner up with somebody who would not just be able to enjoy the easy times, but be able to really grow through the difficult times too, because that's an inevitable part of life. And what happened though was right before the wedding, and here's where it gets more exciting, uh, right after the second date, we dated for a few more months. I proposed <laughs> the wedding story, was great. Second she date. said, yes, <laughs> correct. I didn't, oh yeah, you're okay with my stutter. <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly. Someone finally no, accepted it. Exactly. Let's go. So uh, it was actually the Jewish version, or I'd say the Orthodox version of, of a bachelor party. So it's called like an afruf. Uh, it's where the guy gets up the Shabbat before the wedding, and similar to bar mitzvah, they call up his name with the whole sing song, and ah, everybody gets all excited. And the guy gets up to the Torah, he says a blessing, and everybody, for whatever reason, takes a lot of candy and tries to pelt him on the head. That's, 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 it's generally yeah, showering him with sweets, all kinds of nice meaning there, but that's just the reality. And I was actually freaking out here because I've told you before that I word switch. Now, word switch works when I'm speaking in English and I'm not on script. But when I have to speak in Hebrew or when I have to speak in Hebrew and actually read a blessing that I can't change any words, I can't say a different name for God, nor can I swap the word Baruch for a synonym. It doesn't work in synagogue. Don't try it. People are not happy with it. And that's why for years, even when I was getting better and better and more confident, I would often shy away from any sort of blessings over the Torah because I knew that it would usually be really embarrassing. So for the wedding, though, I said, you know what? I'm not going to shy away. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do this. And I remember feeling nervous. And everybody's there, the future family and everybody. It's just a big time at the synagogue. And as I got up to the Torah, I'm covered in a prayer shawl, a talit, and the and the guy shows me where he's up to to read those first few words, the first six words. And I look inside, and as I read those six words, I was absolutely blown away. I was absolutely shocked. 
and tears welled up in my eyes. The words were as follows, and I'll translate. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe. First four words, God said to Moses, God said to Moshe, my Hebrew name, my only name is Moshe, Mo. God said to Moshe, Mo. Next two words were Al-Tira, do not fear. Do not fear. Al-Tira is very unique meaning there because it doesn't mean Mo, it's going to be easy, or Mo, don't worry, it's all. Al-Tira means don't fear. Don't fear means it could be rough, but I'm here with you. It's meaningful. I've got this. You're good. We fear when we feel like we're not in control at all. God's got this. He gave this to me. He's here with me. And I remember just feeling so emotional going into marriage and having to, Altira, God's got this. He loves me more than I can possibly imagine. I shouldn't fear. Whatever happens, it is for my best. And I should feel that sense of strong meaning and purpose and real happiness in that, which has really been a message that I've been uh, echoing for a long time. And I think it's relevant for all of us. Just by the way, I'm speaking yeah. a little bit about the stutter on this podcast, but every one of you listeners, uh, I wish I could get to know you guys and girls, you all have stuff in your life. Every one of you. Every one of you is a book. Every one of you is a story and it's a book. You all have worlds going on. Whether you realize it or not, you're all a tremendous story, a book. And we're going through our chapters. We're going through our pages. These messages of growth and of finding meaning and purpose in our challenges are really relevant to all of us. And I find that if we could do that successfully, then it can totally help us lead a much happier life. Not happy, like boisterous, laughing life. That too, that's very healthy. But I mean, a deep sense of inner serenity, of peace, of just, of just tranquility, of feeling good, feeling good about ourselves, about who we are, feeling good about the way God made us, not wanting to look like somebody else or have somebody else's bank account or somebody else's car or family. We have everything that we need to be the best people that we could be and loving that and making the best out of that. Awesome. Switching gears just a little bit, Mo. So tell us a little bit about the other side of, of what you do, which is the entrepreneurship, the startup world. You're you know, there in Startup Nation and, and all of that, because that seems to also be a pretty prominent or central piece of your identity and it's something that you write a lot about. And I've seen you, as I referenced earlier, you have a column in a, in a Jewish weekly where you interview, I think it's called uh, Five of Nine, where you ask nine questions to different prominent uh, entrepreneurs and startup people, and they can choose five of the nine to answer. Tell us about that whole side of your life and where that came into being and how you got into the whole entrepreneurship startup world. Awesome. Good. Sure. I'd be happy to share. So shifting gears from, I'd say, full-time Jewish work, I took an MBA. I did an MBA. started in Toronto. I finished MBA at Tel Aviv University. And I began to work in commerce, kind of fintech commerce in Tel Aviv. Uh, very interesting jobs and people, all kinds of stories. Um, I'm sorry, I moved, but did you know that you, at some point you decided you didn't want to be a rabbi for life, obviously, right? So you so it, education. Yeah, I kind of knew throughout that I wanted to be in the business world and teach a lot on the side, more as a passion. So I was never really planning to make rabbinical or rabbinics a full-time job. I did veer a little bit into doing that for a year or two or three, and then I continued to teach throughout the last 10 or 15 years, but most of that has been kind of on the side and not as the source of my my salary, so to say, livelihood. Uh, my livelihood. Thank you very much. So that's what I, that's my goal. And my goal is to really work to ensure, and I like my work and it's enjoyable and I find it interesting and it's fun, but uh, I certainly have a world outside of my job, which I'd highly recommend for everybody to have each in your own unique ways. And my world, I love to teach Torah. I love to learn Torah, spend a lot of family time. I love to travel and snowboard, a lot of stuff, but certainly that's what I love to do. And that's kind of what my vision and dream has been. In terms of the businessy stuff, so I began to work here, interestingly, because it kind of come full circle also with the acting, with a lot of influencers on social media and really giving them opportunities to make money uh, through their audience. So those often with, um, I began to work with some celebrities also, uh, creating opportunities for them to monetize their audience, whether it's all kinds of social media channels, providing them with video content or other kinds of content they can share with their audiences. It's a little bit more deep and complex. If you'd like, I'd be happy to go into the details. And I did that for really a couple years for another company, kind of happened upon it, began to really work on it, built a team around it. We made a lot of money from it, built a lot of relationships from it. And just about eight months ago, I shifted out of that company 
the CEO of that company provided pre-seed capital. He actually invested in a minute startup that's in the space. Winfluencers, the name is really taking influencers and empowering them to win, to monetize their passion. There's 1.6 million Instagrammers with over 15,000 followers. It's a huge burgeoning world of people that are regular people and they now have a large audience, whether it's in food or travel or tech or motherhood or whatever, DIY, whatever it might be, they're passionate about something. And we would like to give them opportunities to both provide authentic quality content and experiences for their audiences and make money from that. And that's what I've shifted out to do now. And it's a fun experience. It's just, there's just fascinating people. But I've got to say that in, in, in the business world in general, and particularly with entrepreneurship and starting a company, there are so many challenges. And I'm, it sounds cliche, and I'm sure you've heard it a gazillion times. There are so, so, so many challenges. And if we got crippled by the adversity that we face, there was no way we can even make it a day in this world. Learning how to properly, not just get around the challenges, but to take the very things that would seemingly make us weaker than our larger competitors and to use them to our advantage and grow at scale is a fascinating work of art. I'm not there, I'm trying to. But it's interesting that I felt like the 10, 15 years of really big personal challenges in my life, from family to stuttering to other stuff, has really groomed me to really try to take on the business world in a similar way and try to leverage those challenges, the business challenges, and create very unique opportunities from them. So what does it look like on a day-to-day? You're, you're, are you reaching out to these influencers and saying, I have some ideas for you to monetize your audience? And, and what would some of those ideas be? How, how do you know, these kind of small burgeoning people with sort of these micro passions uh, how do they monetize and how do you help them do that? Loaded question, sure, loaded question. So my company now is very small. Uh, I just launched it a few months back, worked with uh, a development team to build the initial platform. It's not an app, it's a platform. And just hired a first employee out of New York. And we, we've onboarded all, already about 45 influencers. And the, we have a couple advertising partners and they're essentially providing us with content that we can give to our influencers through the platform that they have access to on the back end. To, to share those pieces of content, beautiful pieces of content with their audiences, and they'll generate revenue for that interaction. So if somebody's passionate about food, so they can share beautiful recipes and food stuff with their audiences, and they'll be able to monetize from that. What's been happening more and more in this influencer world often is people are sharing products, and buy, 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 buy. So we're creating more authentic experiences around content and giving influencers the ability to try to monetize that. Uh, my day-to-day now is a lot about investor stuff and strategic partners and trying to build out the team to see if we can make this work in the startup world. Not sure if this will be around in a number of months. By the time you're listening to this, you know, we'll see what's happening then, where, where the company's at. But certainly the startup world has a lot of intrigue from the outside. Most companies fail, one has to know that. And then you gotta see what you can do to try to make, uh, make the vision a reality. So, but it's, uh, it's been a fun ride, a stressful ride, but a fun ride and a great ride. It's been fascinating. And uh, I just want to share with you, like, love what you do. Own what you do. Love what you do. Love life. From your professional life, whether university, post university, like, love it. Enjoy it. Own it. Try to follow what you love to do. Make sure the plan makes sense. But, like, just go and rock at the world's your oyster um, in a practical way, but also a little bit beyond practical, too. The world is beautiful. The world is beautiful. Life can be beautiful. And happiness is, is a choice that every one of you can make, and I hope that you do. That's awesome. Now, a couple years ago, you did write a book. What was the process for that, and why did you decide to, to publish a book, and, and what's kind of its, its central thesis? I, I would imagine that these messages of, I haven't read it, full disclosure, but I would imagine that these are the messages of, of working through your challenges and embracing them, and is that what it's about? And what again, what inspired you to write it? when you did? Love the question. I was giving a lot of lectures and classes to students, to young adults, and there was a lot of feedback around, or positive feedback around the messages that I was giving over. Uh, And people love stories. (laughs) So whenever I shared personal stories, it was usually more well-received than just sharing philosophical concepts. So people encouraged me often to share that personal story with others. And it took me a while to wrap my head around it, and it took me about three or four years from the process of beginning to write the book to actually have it published. I'm not a full-time writer. I'm not really a writer. I, I kind of hacked my way through high school. And <laughs> this is not a, I'm not a nat. I love to write. I'm not a professional writer. That's not what I 
but 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 it just feels like it was just more like a very comfortable style read of just kind of me talking and sharing and kind of going through a story personal narrative and that's really what it was and the goal of the book and a lot of feedback that i've gone around the book which is very very special is that it's through the prism of my life and much more in depth than this podcast but similar themes and sentiments with the entire purpose behind it to try to help all the readers think deeply about their lives and their both struggles and challenges because we all have stuff at different points in our lives and lead a more meaningful and happy life not despite the struggles in our life but because of the struggles in our life and that theme was what i was trying to promote through the book recently i've become more not more passionate, but also passionate, just being more and more deeply rooted in the business world and entrepreneurship and now running a company. One of the new themes that I'm really personally trying to grapple with and trying to grow through is, is juggling this world of <laughs> high stress pressure, constantly on businessy environment with my passion to grow as a, as a Jew. And putting those two together is really difficult because work expects a lot from us day and night. Uh, thank God I'm married. I have four young kids. I'm an active member of my community. I teach a morning Talmud class at 6 a.m., six days a week. I, I got to prepare and teach that. Uh, I go around the States and I teach other institutions and organizations. And I, there's a lot of other factors in my life and trying to continue to grow and continue to study and continue to learn more and teach more is a really big challenge of juggling. So selfishly, I began to reach out to many successful business owners, women and men, entrepreneurs, often CEOs of large companies, and began to get their advice, how they do it. So people that I'm inspired by, people that I don't know, but I've heard about, and they're somehow doing this. Like just this week, we have a CTO of one of the largest companies out of the US, and upcoming, in a couple weeks, we have a woman out of Chicago. She's got, I think, seven kids. She's a CEO of a company that is valued, I think, at several hundred million dollars. She's extremely active. Working. Like just fascinating men and women that we're interviewing to see how they do what they do and what their lessons are, what their advice would be. And they don't have all the answers, but they're also understanding their vulnerabilities and they're struggling and learning what they do to try to succeed in both worlds concurrently is a really special thing. And that's and this uh, is what you're publishing in the columns. That's the column. And that's the hope is to take all those columns and to wrap them into my second book. Into your second book. Well, I, I will be completely honest and tell you as a compliment that I uh, take many interview ideas from your, uh, from your columns. When I see different people you feature, I say, ah, that's one for the list. I haven't gotten to many of them, but I do have a list and they're on the list. So it's starting starting to wrap up. What are some of the the big uh, future plans and projects? You seem like a irrepressible spirit and restless soul and somebody constantly doing new things. Hopefully this startup will, will work out, but are there other projects professionally that you want to dive into? Are there beyond, you know, you talk about the second book, maybe a compilation of, of columns. What other uh, ventures are on the horizon for you professionally or otherwise? A real priority for me is to be a, a very present husband and father. And I'm saying that seriously. So I try to juggle everything with like, you know, I have big visions and dreams and plans, but at the same time, if I'm just doing everything out there, but I'm not really in there, that's not going to be a picture of success for me. So with what I do and with my goals for the future, really trying to maintain a sense of who I am, where I am, what's really most important to me throughout, and not just one day down the road. And that's certainly a big goal of mine throughout growing and growing is to be very much there and loving it and appreciating it. Uh, it's very, very special and beautiful. I really plan to teach on the teaching side. I plan to teach hopefully the entire Talmud once, twice, three times. I would love to continue for the rest of my life to continue to teach that class every single day. Uh, I would love to continue to teach various organizations all over the world. And at some point professionally in the next couple of years, I don't think I've ever really said this publicly, but over the next years, I would love to synthesize a little bit more what my real passions are and this world of technology and business and scale and growth. So more like more health and wellness, more a little bit more spirituality, but spirituality for the masses, like how to just use technology, use a platform to lead a more meaningful life. Mindfulness, there's various ways to do that. 
And I would love to somehow at some point, whether it's some sort of media company that's producing content or whether that's leveraging technology with some sort of app that allows us to access what we need when we need it to ensure that we're being the best that we could be. I would love to see more and more people, me included, living more in the moment, being more present, being more happy with who we are, being more giving, not just taking, and somehow being able to help facilitate that in others would be a dream come true. It's very apropos that you mentioned these ideas because right now on the podcast, we're right in the, in the heart of a series on mindfulness, spirituality, uh, wellness. And I have about five or six people uh, that I've been releasing from time right now that are precisely in that arena and um, doing things right, you know, right up that alley. So that's uh, very powerful to hear about. And again, I think also very much relates to your, the entirety of your journey as someone who has come from a place of difficulties and struggles and then trying to build on that and to find that wholeness. Both you talk about the emotional piece in terms of your family life or the physical piece or psychological piece with, with the stutter and bring that all together. It certainly makes sense that that would be a great passion of yours. Thank you so much. And if any of the listeners would like to be in touch, if I can help in any way, feel free to do so. How how can people uh, contact you and how can people learn more about you and find you online, uh, social media, et cetera? Very question. I'm not, while I'm out there a little bit, I'm not that much out there. I don't like blog and stuff. I don't post much on my own social accounts. I do create videos every so often. So there's some nice videos online. You can find them on YouTube or H.com actually has a, um, I've like eight videos or so that are on there, short inspirational videos that I've done sometimes from the business world. So about the WhatsApp founder who I met or speaking about Snapchat and kind of their stories and how to take inspirational messages from the business technology startup world. That's often a theme of my videos. And I have a website, momernick.com, but the way to be in touch with me, feel free to reach out over Facebook, over LinkedIn, or feel free to send me a personal email to momernick at gmail.com, M-O-E-M-E-R-N-I-C-K at gmail.com. In advance, well, you know, sometimes it takes me a couple of days to respond, but I try to respond. And if I can help in any way, then I do look forward to the privilege of being able to help in any way that I can. Wonderful. Mo Mernick, author, speaker, teacher, entrepreneur. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And I wish you continued success and all of you just rock life, make the most out of it. It's really what we decide. There are things in our life which we don't control, but whether we are happy, whether we're loving it, whether we're enjoying every day is entirely up to us. And I wish us all a blessing to be able to incorporate that in our lives and lead the most happy and meaningful lives possible. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.